Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. Uh, y'all can open to Galatians chapter 1. So I don't have a ton for you this morning. It's an introduction to the book. We'll spend the next few months walking through Galatians a little bit at a time. So this is just the setup uh, for those next few months. Galatians, one of the first letters written by Paul, maybe the first, 48-ish A.D., and he wrote it to churches that he and Barnabas planted. So if you read Acts 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas are sent on the first, on their first kind of long-term mission trip. It was maybe a year, two years long, and they, uh, the, the area that they traveled in, you'll see the map there behind me, they planted uh, multiple churches, four or five for sure, and uh, Galatians is written to those churches, and it's, it's hot. There's a lot of emotion to it. Uh, Paul is dealing with a very dangerous situation, and so he just goes right at it. Again, there's a lot of urgency and a lot of passion behind what he's saying. Sometimes we lose that in translation, but there's a lot of emotion behind what, what he's saying. And so today we're going to look, again, just to the introduction, the first ten verses which will set us up for the next several months. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Jesus from the dead. And all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So the situation, and again, it's a dangerous one, is apparently pretty soon after Paul and Barnabas make the loop and go back to Antioch, which is the church where they were sent from, they get word that the Galatians have been, are beginning to believe Really, it's a, it's a heresy. He says this is a false gospel. It's false good news, which isn't good news at all. So there's, this is not confined to the region of Galatia. This is a controversy or, a, or it was an issue in, in, in the entire church at this point, which is what to do with Gentiles. Remember, Jesus was a Jew. The 12 disciples were Jews. Christianity was born out of the soil of Judaism. The first church was in Jerusalem. That was still considered kind of the mothership. And as the gospel began to spread to Gentile regions, there was this question about, well, what does a Gentile have to do to be saved? And what Paul said is, trust Jesus. But there are these Jewish Christians, your Bible may call them Judaizers, it's not the greatest term, but you may have heard that. These Jewish Christians were saying, no, it's Jesus plus the Old Testament law. They need both. Again, Jesus was a Jew, the 12 disciples were Jews. Christianity was born out of the soil of Judaism, this this covenant that God gave Moses. That's the way that we relate rightly to him. Nothing's changed at this point. Nothing has changed. And so maybe well-meaning, you know, I don't know that you want to ascribe what, what you want to do with their motives, 
but you have these teachers who are Jewish Christians and they, they believe Jesus is the Messiah, but they're teaching these Gentiles, you guys have to be circumcised and follow the rest of the Old Testament law. You can see that verse there, Acts 15, I think four or five, that where, again, the controversy was beyond just what was going on in the Galatian churches. It was an issue in the entire early church. At this point, again, we're less than 20 years from Jesus ascending into heaven. There is no New Testament yet that people can refer to and say, see, this is what it says about the old covenant and the the new covenant. Everybody's still kind of figuring things out. And so you've got, there's space for these false teachers to step in and and to communicate things that are not that are not true. And so Paul is, he's understandably upset. And the language he uses is, again, it's very stark. What he says about these false teachers is he says, y'all are going to be, y'all are under God's curse. And there's not a stronger statement in the New Testament. Like that's, that's the worst thing that can be said. The, the word is anathema. There's not a, there's not a stronger word. If you're anathematized, That's not about being excommunicated or kicked out from the church. What he's saying to them is y'all are going to hell. Like there's not a, y'all are under God's judgment and you're headed to hell. It's not too late. You can still repent, but the road that you're on, you're heretics and you're teaching heresy. Again, this is very strong language that Paul is using. It's a dangerous situation for these Jewish Christians. They're in, they are in danger of hell. And then to the Galatians, to these Gentile churches, he's saying, you guys, y'all are in trouble as well. He says, you've deserted God. That word deserted is another strong word. That's used of someone in the military who goes from one side to the other. It's a, it's a traitor, a turncoat. And Paul is saying, that's what y'all are doing. Y'all are deserting God. This is not an issue of personal taste. This is not a, a, an issue of personal opinion. This is not... That this is, these are non-negotiables. Galatians, these are, these are baby Christians. Baby Christians. And he's saying to them, you guys are in danger. Your salvation is at stake. You haven't deserted God yet, but that's, you're in the process of doing that. And so you need to change course. You need to change direction. Again, there's, there's a high degree of passion and urgency in Galatians, because Paul sees these churches that he started, they are all going in a very, very bad direction. And it, and again, this is not just, I don't like the music. I mean, this is, you guys are abandoning God and you're, uh, you're entertaining these teachers who are teaching you things that are just not true. They're heretical. They're trying to, again, combine the Old Testament law and Jesus. They're not saying that Jesus isn't the Messiah. They're just saying he's not enough. You need him plus the Old Testament law if you want to be saved. And again, this was kind of a controversy throughout the church. Uh, You can read Acts 13 and 14 if you want background on the founding of these churches in Galatians. And then Acts 15 deals with this controversy. Galatians is written before Acts 15. If If that counts called the Council of Jerusalem, we'll talk about it later, but in that council, that's the issue. What do we do with the Gentiles? And the, the wisdom of the group and the Holy Spirit was they don't need to follow, Gentiles don't need to follow the Old Testament law. If that decree had already been issued, then Paul could have used that in Galatians, and he doesn't. So you can kind of slot Galatians, if you're reading Acts, you can slot Galatians between Acts 14 and Acts 15. 
So the two major issues that Paul deals with throughout the book are his apostleship. He's arguing that he's a genuine apostle. And you may be thinking, well, I didn't think we were supposed to defend ourselves. I thought we were supposed to let the Lord defend us. And 100% true, Paul's not doing this from a place of ego. To be an apostle is to be a messenger or a sent one. And if you can undermine the messenger, then you can undermine the message. And so his apostleship, the fact that he is genuinely called and sent by God, is integral to the message that he preaches. And that's the second issue. So the first issue is, is Paul actually an apostle? And the second, message, uh, the second issue is, is the message that he taught true? Did he preach the true gospel? One of the charges against him is, you're just a people pleaser. That's what you're trying to do. You're removing the, you're, you're, make, you're trying to make the gospel palatable or appealing to Gentiles. And so you're taking out all of the things that they would find offensive. You're reducing the gospel, the the true message, which is Jesus plus the law. You're taking the law out of it because you want the Gentiles to like you. You're trying to please these people that you've been sent to. And Paul says, no way. Like, I used to do that. I used to be someone who tried to please people. But if I was still trying to do that, I wouldn't be a servant of Jesus. That's not necessarily winning me any popularity contests. And so you've got, again, both these issues tied together. So again, an apostle, a messenger, a sent one. In the New Testament, that word is used in two different senses. One is the capital 12. Peter, James, John, Matthew, Thomas, Judas, Judas, those guys. The the 12 men that Jesus pulled to himself had a special relationship with them. That, That group of 12. And then there's a broader way that that word is used after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, beginning in Acts, which is really how we would use the word missionary or church planter, someone sent by the church to usually to establish a new church in an area where there's not a church. And so like Barnabas would be an example of someone who was called an apostle, but he wasn't in that original group of 12. And what Paul is going to advocate for, which is really unique, is that he's a part of that original group of 12. And you remember, Paul didn't become a Christian until after Jesus had ascended into heaven. But he's saying, I'm on the same level as Peter and James and, or Peter and, and, yeah, and John and James and Andrew. Like, I'm one of those guys. Which, again, we'll have to unpack how that can be when he wasn't around during Jesus' earthly life. But he does. He, he makes a case there. And you can see there's a verse there on the screen where he talks about himself being someone who's abnormally born. He recognized his calling looks different. But what he's saying is I was not called by any people and I was not sent from any people. It was God called me and God sent me. And so you can trust my message. And again, we'll unpack that particularly over the next two weeks. And what is this message that he preaches? And the message that he preaches is that we're saved or we're justified by faith alone, by grace through, through faith. There's no, no obeying the law. We'll talk some as we get into Galatians, the importance of obedience 100%, but that flows out of this right relationship with God. It's not the basis for right relationship with God. And that's the sticking point between him and these other Jewish leaders who are teaching, Jewish Christian leaders who are, who've infiltrated the Galatian Churches, he uses two words, and these two words really summarize the gospel. He says grace and peace. Those aren't throwaway words. They're not pleasantries. They actually, again, they summarize 
his understanding of the gospel, which is the true understanding. We're saved by, by grace, by God's unmerited or undeserved favor. Not every time, but most of the time that word grace is used in the New Testament, it's referring to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And then peace is what flows out of that grace. Grace is, is what God kind of pours out on us, this unmerited favor, particularly through the cross, this, this work that Jesus accomplishes on our behalf that we didn't earn and we don't deserve. And the result of that work is peace or wholeness or harmony in our relationship with God, with others, and with ourselves. Grace and peace, that's the whole thing. Grace is the basis and peace is the result. And he gives us just a little bit more. He says, when he's describing Jesus, he says he's the one who, he died for your sins. And the fancy theological term for that is substitutionary atonement. It's not a phrase that you necessarily need to start throwing around, but that's what it is. A substitute is exactly what it sounds like. Jesus died in our place. He died the death that we all deserved. So he died for our sins. He died for us. And, and then atonement is at one meant. That's what that, it's literally what it means. His death dealt with sin, and sin is what separated us from the Father. He died for our sins. That speaks to forgiveness. But Paul goes further and says this death, it's not just about securing your eternal future. It's not just about heaven when you die. He died for your sins to rescue you from this present evil age. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time camped out on this because that's a the, that can, that it is a theoretical concept, or it's abstract at least. I think it's incredibly important to understand this. We've talked about it before, but I'm going to unpack it just a little bit. What Paul is saying is Jesus' death is not just about forgiveness for the future. It rescues us from the present evil age. The Jewish way of understanding history is history was divided into two ages. Present evil age and then the age to come. The age to come is when everything is great. When God has redeemed everything. When God has punished all wickedness. Where he's fulfilled every promise. And the thing that separates those two ages is called the day of the Lord. So when you read the Old Testament, you'll either see that phrase, the day of the Lord, or you might see the word day and it's capitalized. It's not referring to a 24-hour period, but a time in history when God would send the Messiah to make everything right, to inaugurate this age to come. That's what the Messiah would do. The Messiah was, kind of, the Messiah was not seen as God, but a human who was anointed by God to help bring in his kingdom, to help usher in this new age. And so all of the Jews, they're living in this present evil age, and they're all looking forward to the age to come. And they know the transition between those two things is called the day of the Lord. And in their mind, God's going to judge all the Gentile nations and either wipe them out or subjugate them to the Jewish people. That's the picture for them. When Jesus comes, that sh he shakes up the understanding. He is the Messiah, but we continue to live in a world that's marked by fallenness. And so the New Testament writers under, began to expand their understanding of particularly what the day of the Lord is. And so that picture behind me, yellow and blue make green. That's why that box is green. It's a mixture. That's where we live. We live in a mixed bag. We experience 
some of the realities of this present evil age, of a fallen world. And we experience some of the realities of the age to come, the kingdom of God, his rule and his reign. And we live in, in, in the middle of that. We have Jesus. So what, what we see with Jesus is he's taken the day of the Lord and he's broken it apart into two distinct events. His first coming that we read about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and his second coming, which he promises in those gospels. So we look back to the first Christmas and Easter and we look forward to him on a white horse that we read about in Revelation coming. And we live in between. Last week when we looked at Isaiah 61, we said we live in the day of God's favor and that day has extended for 2,000 years. It's a time when people can repent and be reconciled to God. That's where we're living. And because there's opportunities for us to repent and be reconciled to God, that means God has not dealt finally and fully with all evil. And so Satan is defeated, but he's not destroyed. He continues to have influence. We can be healed, but we also struggle with sickness. We're all going to die unless Jesus returns. First, it doesn't matter what new breakthroughs there are in terms of medical tech. We're all going to die. Our bodies are falling apart. That's part of what it means to live in a fallen world. We can experience God working in our circumstances, and we continue to experience the effects of sin, our own sin and the sins of other people because we're connected to them. Again, it's a mixed bag. But to me, it's that, it, that describes life. Like, that, that's it. And it's super helpful for me to keep this in mind. One of the major knocks people have on Christianity is the problem of pain. It is suffering. Why do we suffer if God is good and he is powerful? Why does he allow suffering to continue? And you can't say this to somebody, but the bluntest answer is God allows suffering to continue because he doesn't want to send you to hell. He wants to give you an opportunity to respond to him to say yes to him. And he wants to give that same opportunity to everybody else. And when Jesus returns, that door is closed. There won't be another chance. And so, Second Peter, God doesn't want anyone to perish. Don't misunderstand his patience. He's not slow in keeping his promise. It's his kindness that's creating opportunities for people to respond. And so while we, people have opportunities, including me and you, while we have opportunities to respond, that means the effects of the fall will continue to be felt. It means that the devil won't be completely destroyed, defeated, but not destroyed. It means your body and my body are going to age and deteriorate and degrade, no matter how many boxes of Wheaties you eat. Like, that's going to happen to you, and it's going to happen to me. We live in the green box where there will be suffering and there will be pain and there will be tastes of glory as well. It seems like to me, and you can disagree, you can disagree with anything I say, but you can certainly with this. It seems to me that right now while we're living in that green box, God's primary concern is our insides. We're concerned with our outsides. I'm not talking about how we look. I'm talking about our lives. We're concerned about the circumstances of our life. Is everything going to plan? Am I accomplishing the goals? Am I getting the job done? And what God's concerned about is, 
our insides? Are you, are you, thank you, are you becoming more like, are you becoming more like Jesus? Are you growing in humility? What we talked about two weeks ago. Are you growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control? Are, are these things happening? And it seems to me that the things that are most effective in transforming our insides are often the most painful to our outsides. It's sandpaper. And if you've ever rubbed sandpaper on your arm, it doesn't feel good. But that's what he's doing. He's shaping and molding. We've said before, we have two, two choices. God can either use his hands to mold us and shape us if we're soft like clay, or he uses a hammer and a chisel to form us and shape us if we're hard like marble. And that's, that's the green box. And I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just trying to set a, a framework for where we're living. We, we will continue to experience the effects of the fall. That most, that, that's outside of us. That can't touch what's going on in here. Matt said it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus. Your salvation is secure in him. Your hope is secure in him. Your peace and joy are secure in him. Those circumstances, they, they, don't, they don't mess. That's not here. That's just out here. That's where we live, though. And we also get to experience his rule and his reign. And one of the primary places we do see that is internally. We want to see it more externally. We want to continue to pray and believe and move towards that. But recognizing we're not going to fully and finally see the kingdom come until Jesus returns. That I went off target. So back to Galatians. This is what I want you to hear as we wrap up. I'd love for you to read. the. It's only six chapters. It's really short. I'd love you to read it. Maybe read it before next week if you can. I know a lot of you are on a Bible plan and this may throw you off, but you might at least read through the rest of chapter one and begin to give you a, a feel for where the letter is going. I think one of the things for us, and I don't know the answer to this question yet, but I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll land on it as we get into Galatians. What, what are we tempted to add? So if these Jewish Christians, if it's Jesus plus the law, what is it for us? Jesus plus what? For most of us, it's not the Old Testament law. That's not the thing. We're not thinking, well, Jesus plus eating kosher, that's what gets me. That's not what we're thinking. That's not how we were raised. And so that's not, the, that's not how we see relating to God. As, we don't see that as essential. But what is it for you personally? What is it for your family? What is it for our church? What is it within our community? Jesus plus what makes us acceptable to God? Jesus plus what? results in right relationship with him. Again, I think that would be something I would encourage you as you read through Galatians, just begin to ask the Lord, show me. Where, where am I tempted? Paul uses the word pervert. Where am I tempted to pervert or to, to distort the gospel? He uses this word confusion. You've been thrown into confusion. You've been thrown into inner turmoil. Where are we, where, where, is, where are we at risk of being thrown into inner turmoil because our feet aren't firmly planted on the reality of what Jesus has done for us and what it means to relate rightly to him. Good questions to begin to, to think through. And hopefully as we walk through Galatians, we'll get, we'll get some answers. What it means to relate rightly to Jesus, both initially in terms of 
conversion and then ongoing in terms of our growth in him. So I'm going to say a prayer and Matt's going to come back and give you some logistics for small groups. Here's my one plug on small groups. We've said this from day one. You don't have to be in a small group at Stonebridge to be like in good standing with us. We don't put these groups up to put people in them so we can count and feel good about ourselves. The reason we have groups is because we believe firmly that discipleship happens best along relational lines. And for most of us, we're not intentional enough in our relationships. It's just that most of it, that we just don't talk heart level with, mo- with, with people. We talk sports, we talk business, we talk family, maybe we talk, but, but we're not necessarily talking at a heart level, even with people that we love. The conversation, we're, we're, we're too busy or whatever. And small groups create, uh, it's an it's a anchor on your calendar. Once every week or once every other week, I'm going to get together with people. These are most likely not going to be your best friends. You're probably not going to go on vacation with these guys for the next 25 years. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not matchmaking here. What we're trying to do is say, here's people who love God and who love you. And remember, love is doing what's best for somebody else. It's not necessarily tied to feeling a particular way. These are people who love God and love you, and they want to help you, and they want you to help them grow in your relationship with him. You live in the green box, and so there's, there's going to be some suffering, and these guys will walk with you through that as much as you'll let them. So again, you don't have to be in a Stonebridge small group, but you need to be in one somewhere. There's ne- there needs to be people in your life who love you, who love God, where you're intentionally sharing your heart with. People you're sharing with and people who are sharing with you. And small groups for us, is, it's just it's the mechanism to facilitate those relationships. So we, we push them because we hadn't found anything better. But you may have those relationships. And so you may say, I don't necessarily need a group here because I've got this group or that group that I'm regularly connecting with. We're sharing at that level. We're spurring each other on to love and to good deeds. And I don't want you to feel guilty about not, you don't need to explain to me or anybody else why you're not doing one. But we do want to, again, I, I want to encourage you, if you don't have that, Connect with some of these guys. You're not committing to anything this morning. You're just getting information. So talk to as many groups as you want, and Matt will help you figure out which ones to go to. But I would encourage you, again, talk, connect, and see what fits best with you. But fundamentally, for all of us, we're not, we're not meant to do this alone. And so we need people who are walking with us. All right, I've, I've said enough. Let's say a prayer. God, I pray for all of us that you would connect us into life-giving community. And if that's the groups around this room, then great. But I pray for every person in this room that they would live in community. They would live in family with brothers and sisters in Christ, a place where they can give and where they can receive. I pray that for me and everyone else. God, as we enter into, this, into Galatians and diving into this book, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes to the truth and how... This applies to us in Marietta in 2023. I pray that you would show us the places where we're tempted to add something to Jesus. I don't think any of us do that consciously. But would you show us the places where we maybe are are distorting or perverting the gospel in our own hearts and minds. God, I do want to pray for those who, who are feeling the green box particularly acutely today. 
fully aware of suffering and pain. God, would you be merciful and kind to them? Would you comfort and console? Would you encourage and strengthen? And for all of us, God, I pray as we walk in the already and not yet of your kingdom, that you would use the circumstances of our lives to make us more like Jesus. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 